Our second reading tonight comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. If you keep having to repair the same thing over and over again, you know that something is wrong. That's obvious, isn't it? If you Google constant repairs, you will see that the most common problem that apparently people encounter is having repeatedly to repair your internet connection. Remember Sean having that problem with his computer a few weeks ago. He couldn't get online, either because his computer couldn't find the signal, if it could find the signal, it couldn't connect to it. And I would get it working. Next time he'd say, Dad, I can't get online again. And this went on for, for, for days. Until eventually I discovered that the problem was an incorrect security setting. And once that was sorted, it worked okay, at least as well as anything works, connecting to the internet in our house. But if there is a repeated problem... It is an issue that does need addressing. Einstein said that the definition of futility was doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. The frustrating thing about computers is that you can do the same thing and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But when something consistently fails, you know you need to be looking for a better solution than the one that you've found so far. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews looks back over years, no centuries, of offering sacrifices. Countless animals slaughtered as burnt offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings. And he says, what did all that achieve? What difference did all those sacrifices make to the problem of human sin? And his answer is, not a lot. 
It was a persistent attempt to rectify a problem that didn't work. If they'd been effective in dealing with, with sin, he says, you wouldn't have had to keep on offering all those sacrifices. It was like trying to repair the same problem time and time and time again. He portrays the whole thing as an exercise in futility. The same sacrifices, endlessly repeated year after year, were constantly offered by the priests to no avail. Because those sacrifices could never take away human sin. Think about it, he says. If the person bringing the sacrifice knew that their sin was forgiven, knew that their conscience was cleansed as a result of bringing that offering, knew that they had been put right with God, they would have stopped bringing sacrifices because they knew that their problem with sin had been sorted. But there was no sacrifice that could bring a lasting solution to the problem of their guilty conscience. Consequently, all that happened was when they offered sacrifices year in, year out, that actually served as a continual reminder to them of their sin and their failure. It didn't send out a message that says, your sin is dealt with, because that wasn't the case. It sent out the message saying, you have got a real problem, that you're not managing to sort. Because they have to keep on coming back, offering more sacrifices, because they knew that they weren't right with God. At best, it was a matter of putting a sticking plaster on a wound. At worst, it was a perpetual reminder of the problem of sin and the inadequacy of the sacrificial system to deal with it. The solution to a guilty conscience prescribed by the sacrificial system simply wasn't working. So it's not surprising that the writer to the Hebrews, sorry, the writer of Psalm 40 addresses God and says, Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Indeed, the reason why such offerings did not fill God's heart was that they simply didn't come up to scratch. Sacrifices, burnt offerings, sin offerings, well, God recognised the sincerity of the people bringing them, but they didn't achieve the desired object. So what did tick God's box? In the words of Psalm 40, it's the person who says, Here I am, I have come to do your will, O God. And you can see that that makes perfect sense. God is far more pleased with willing obedience than he is with a never-ending supply of animal sacrifice to say how sorry we are at getting it wrong. God is far more pleased with a heart that says, here is my life, I am willing to live for you. So Ben, in terms of your willingness to say, here I am, I've come to do your will, O God, God says, that's brilliant. Far better than any number of lambs or goats or bulls sacrificed in your back garden. It is your willingness to say, here I am, God, take my life. But Hebrews takes those words and puts them not in the mouth of Ben Sheldon, but in the mouth of Jesus. So that as Jesus comes into the world, he says to his father, you're not really interested in sacrifices and offerings. Instead, you've prepared a body for me. I have come to do your will, O God. And Hebrews sees a reference here to the incarnation. God in Christ becoming a human being, living among us as a man in a flesh and blood physical body. Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but you have prepared a body for me, says Jesus. And it's that 
that pleases God more than the sin offerings under the Old Covenant. The problem is the writer of the Hebrews has to cheat a bit to do this. Because if you flip back in your Bibles to Psalm 40, you'll see it doesn't mention at all about a body being prepared for anyone. Instead it talks about having your ears pierced. Not for cosmetic reasons, but in ancient Israel, if a slave had the opportunity to be set free, but instead preferred to stay with his or her master, the master would take an awl and he would pin the slave's ear to the doorpost as a sign that the slave belonged to that household for the rest of their life. So having your ear pierced was actually a sign of devotion and complete obedience. Outside of that specific context, of course, having your ear pierced can mean all sorts of things. So that may be why Hebrews amends the text to say, a body you have prepared for me. But it's, it's a legitimate move. There may be a threefold rationale behind Hebrews changing the text in that way. Firstly, obviously, an ear is a part of the body. And there is a literary device called synecdoche, which means that you can use a part as a way of referring to the whole. And so if you refer to the ear, that represents the body as a whole. So having his ear fastened to the doorpost didn't just mean my ear belongs to my master, it represented who I am in my entirety belongs to the master. So the body is, from that point of view, a legitimate extension and an interpretation of just having your ear nailed to the door. Secondly, the speaker of Psalm 40 goes on to say to God, it is written about me in the scroll. And you read the psalm and you think, well, who is the psalmist talking about there? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about Ben Sheldon? Whose name is written in the scroll? It is Jesus. He is the one who comes to fulfil the purposes of God. It is Christ's coming which is prophesied in Scripture, which is why the writer of the Hebrews thinks it legitimate to take this psalm and apply it to Christ as the speaker. So if by synecdoche an ear can represent the whole body, then clearly it's appropriate to represent Christ as the speaker who says, you have prepared a body for me, for him to come into the world in the Incarnation. And he comes into the world as an expression of his complete dedication and commitment to God. Christ's willingness to enter a human body, to be born a physical flesh and blood human being, to serve God in the world was a sign of his commitment, 100% dedication to his Father. So the original symbolism of having your ear pierced as a sign of commitment and devotion and dedication and servanthood was exactly true of what Jesus did when he came into the world in a flesh and blood human body. So while Hebrews has altered the text, you get a deeper understanding of the meaning of Psalm 40 and how it applies to Christ by the alteration that Hebrews has made. It is true to the original reading of the text as it applies to Jesus. And Jesus, coming into the world to fulfil God's will and purpose, delights God's heart in a way that all those other sacrifices never could. And you can see why. In place of endless sacrifices that are a constant acknowledgement of human failure, by means of the Incarnation, Jesus lives for the first time ever a human life of complete obedience, devotion and dedication. In terms of honouring God, he did what everybody else has always failed to do. 
And the good news is, he did it for us. That's what the incarnation is about. God himself becoming a human being, so that as a human being, he can live the perfect life that we fail to live. And because he did that, he is uniquely equipped to deal with our sin and failure. Morally, Jesus is the only one to achieve 100% success, and we are the direct beneficiaries of that. So the writer of the Hebrews makes the point that the coming of Christ into the world makes the whole sacrificial system redundant. He does away with burnt offerings and sin offerings and all that stuff. And all that stuff is replaced with the one person who says, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will. You've prepared a body for me. Psalm 40 expresses God's dissatisfaction with all those burnt offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings and instead sets his seal of approval on his son. So the order of repeated sacrificial offerings for human failure is repealed in favour of the single life of obedience lived by Christ and his own single, unrepeatable, completely successful sacrifice for sin. By Jesus... By his life of obedience, by his atoning death, we are put right with God. Our sin is dealt with. Our guilt is atoned for once and for all by Jesus. And the key verse that summarises what Christ has done for us is chapter 10, verse 14 of Hebrews. By one sacrifice, Christ has perfected forever those who are being made holy. That is comprehensive. It is one sacrifice. Not an endless series of offerings presented over a period of centuries. His single sacrifice makes us perfect. We may feel that Hebrews is stretching a point a bit here. After all, none of us here is perfect. But the sacrifice of Christ is able to cleanse our consciences once and for all in a way that all those offerings under the first covenant couldn't. And whereas we may not be perfect yet, perfection is on its way. Because by his one offering, Christ is said to have made us perfect forever. And when we get to heaven, we will indeed be morally perfect. No more compromise, no more failure, no more letting us down, no more letting God down. Christ has cleansed our conscience. He has saved us to the uttermost. He has guaranteed your ultimate perfection by his death upon the cross. The salvation that Christ offers is comprehensive, delivering us completely and totally from sin and death for eternity. The Old Testament sacrificial system was rather an unsuccessful attempt to hold sin at bay. Complete victory over sin has been achieved once and for all by Christ. Once and for all. Once and for all. I keep saying that, Hebrews keeps saying it. That is the main point that the letter wants to get across. Christ has dealt with your sin and your guilt and whatever separates you and God once and for all. His is a lasting and comprehensive solution to the problem of sin. I sometimes say, I don't do guilt. And I say that as a Christian. It is very easy to tie yourself up in knots 
over a sense of failure or to live with a perpetual sense of not coming up to the mark, of never being good enough, of being constantly troubled by a guilty conscience. Yet, the good news is that Christ has taken your sin from you. That's why he died on the cross. That's where it went. He has borne your guilt. The burden of it was transferred from him, from you to him. You don't bear your iniquity anymore in the sight of God. He has borne it for you. He has done for you what you could never do for yourself. He has lived the life you should have done and failed to do. And his sacrificial death has the power to wipe your conscience clean, erase the record of your sins, guarantee your place in heaven. You don't need to do guilt because of Jesus. And as a sign that the job is done and dusted, Hebrews quotes the beginning of Psalm 110, that psalm which identifies Jesus as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that psalm which identifies Jesus as the high priest uniquely equipped to enter the heavenly sanctuary and make the perfect, totally effective sacrifice that deals with our sin. The first verse of that psalm says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Christ is now sitting at the right hand of God. His job is done. He doesn't need to carry on serving and standing as all the other priests did year after year. His mission has been accomplished and he is now seated at the right hand of God. And what was his mission? What was his task? What was his goal? Your salvation, dealing with your guilt, removing your sin, reconciling you to God. You have been saved. Your sins have been forgiven. Eternal life has been guaranteed for you by Christ. The job has been done already and it was done properly the first time. There is no need to call him back again because the repair didn't work properly. No. By one sacrifice, he has guaranteed your perfection forever. Hard to believe? Difficult to accept? Maybe. But it's true, nevertheless. That's the faith that is at the core of what being a Christian is all about. And if you can get your head round it, it is the perfect antidote to fear and to guilt. Christ has done it all, already, completely, and finally for you. Your part is simply to believe and to accept. That's all that's required of you. If you haven't done it yet, what are you waiting for? If you have done it, then that's what we celebrate at this table tonight. The body of Christ broken, his blood shed, as the sign and guarantee of your sin forgiven, your guilt dealt with, your ultimate perfection in heaven, through Christ's single, one-off offering of himself. By one sacrifice, Christ has perfected forever those who are being made holy. And that's you 
And that's me. That's good news. That's grace.